Psalm 15. All right, I'm going to do a little bit of backdrop here in regards to this psalm. Somewhat speculative, but um, I think looking, I think the speculative part of it lines up. I think it's fruitful when we look at what we what we what we're looking at here this morning. So this psalm is another. We know without speculation that it was written by by King David, and many many Bible scholars think that. And this is where the speculation part comes in. So take it kind of with a grain of salt. It's it's not a thus saith the Lord, but um, it's interesting to look at this psalm in light of this possibility. And there's some things that line up to kind of give us some indicators that this is perhaps the events that it, that that is that it's connected to it. So many Bible scholars think this psalm was written by David at a time. Um, shortly after the Ark of the Covenant being brought back into Jerusalem and to put into the tent that David constructed and eventually put into the tabernacle there in Jerusalem at Mount Zion. And in, in this event that we're referencing to is recorded in two places in Scripture. Uh, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you can go and read it. There's kind of the cliff note version of it. And then in, second, in 1 Chronicles chapters 13 through 15, there's a more detailed account of um, these two passages where we're told that David, um, of the time when David had first set or sought to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And we know that it eventually got there, but the first time that David tried to do this, it didn't go so well. And you may be familiar with that story. But if you're not, I'll just give you a little synopsis of it. We know at the time that David did this, that the Ark of the Covenant was in a place called Kirjath-Jerim. Or Kirjath-Jerim. And um, it had been in the house of a man by the name of Abinadab. And it had been there for 20 years. And it's really interesting to see how it got there. I wish I had more time, all the time this morning to, to account that. But uh, it was under the reign of Saul. And Saul did a, a, a really foolish thing. And consequently, he lost the Ark of the Covenant. It was taken in battle by the Philistines. And, and, and the Philistines, after some time, willingly gave it back. So, and it's kind of a funny story, so go and read it. It's, it's kind of cool. But nevertheless, David, after it had been at Abinadab for 20 years, David came to Kirjath-Jerim to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem. And at that time, we know that the whole nation was filled with joy because David had showed up with 30,000 men who had gathered from across the land um, for, from all, all throughout Israel to join this, this procession that began at um, Abinadab's house. And um, what we know is that on the way that the ark had been put on a wagon which, by the way, wasn't the way that God had ordained for or commanded for the ark to, to be carried. But nevertheless, they put it on a wagon, and when, the, 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 when they were on that journey with the procession and there was much celebration, much joy going on, we we're told that the oxen stumbled. And when the oxen stumbled, the cart shook, and the, and the ark itself was jolted. And there was a man, and his name was Uzzah, and Uzzah was the son of Abinadab, and he reached his hand out, because he was next to the ark, he reached his hand out to secure the ark, right, to keep it from falling off of the cart, um, but when Uzzah touched the ark, he was struck down by God, dead, and he died right there at that moment next to that wagon. In light of this, David became angry, we're told, with what the Lord had done, and, and more importantly, David was afraid, it says, on that day, David was afraid. 
And in his anger and because of his fear, David asked this question, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? And so on that day, David changed his mind. And, and he dispersed all the people, and he changed his mind about bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and he left it at the house of a man um, by the name of Obed, Obed-Edom. And, and, and what we know is that while the ark was there is that Obed-Edom was blessed. And it was there for three months, and David heard about how Obed-Edom had been blessed since he had received the ark. And then hearing about this, David was renewed in his confidence. And, and, and he returned for the ark, and again, with much celebration and much gladness, this time he brought the ark to Jerusalem, where eventually it would be placed into the tabernacle. On a side note, we know that David went about it a much different way this time, where he brought the Levites, the priests, and, and like God had commanded, then they carried the ark upon the poles into the city of Jerusalem up to Mount Zion. Now, the ark, remember, the ark is considered was considered and is considered to be the earthly throne of God, right? And, and eventually the ark where it rested at one point there in the tabernacle was also considered to be the sanctuary of God, the house of God, the earthly house of God. And because of this, the tabernacle and the ark were sacred and holy. In fact, it was the very reason for why Uzzah died when he touched the ark, and, and even though it was done in innocence, it was a sacred thing, a holy thing, something that men who are unholy and not sacred were not to touch. And so when David asked these questions in verse 1, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill, he was really asking this question, and we'll read it here in a minute, he was asking what kind of man, he was asking what kind of man must I be, and what must I do in order that I may abide and dwell with you, God? To be in the place where I am ultimately, what that refers to is, be in the place where I'm sheltered from harm, in the place where all of my needs are met, in my Father's house, right? And ultimately, David's desire was to be in the presence of God. David's desire was to know God in a more intimate way. Being the presence of God and knowing that God is a holy and righteous God and even possibly remembering what had happened to Uzzah who had violated God's command by touching the ark, which was strictly prohibited, David, I think, in light of his desire to be near God, realized that there was a strict standard and a specific set of requirements set forth in order for a person to be able to come into God's presence and in order for a person to have intimate fellowship with God. It wasn't something that was to be done casually or lightly. And so when we look at the rest of these verses, because we kind of highlighted verse 1, but I'm going to read them all. But when we look at all the verses here in Psalm 15, we need to keep in mind this, guys. This is not a prescription. It's not a prescription for how someone can come to be saved. It's not a prescription for being saved. Rather, what we read in this Psalms, these verses, they're a description of how a saved person ought to live, how we as believers ought to live if we want to please God, if we want to have fellowship with Him. In other words, these things um, do not make us citizens of the, the kingdom of God. These things that we read here, they rather what they do is they describe what a citizen of the kingdom of God is and how a citizen of the kingdom of God is to live. And so with that, 
We'll read it here. It's only five verses. It says in verse 1, David asks the question, starting off, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Verse 2, he who works, walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things, the very end of verse 5, shall never be moved. So, in light of this, as we look back now to verse 1 and see these questions that David asks, we see that the first attribute, I think, by the questions themselves, the first attribute of someone who is a citizen of God's kingdom is the fact that they have a desire to be in the presence of God. Right? Citizens of God's kingdom, children of God, desire to be in the presence of God. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, it records the account of, of David and his men battling against the Jebusites. It's a pretty cool account. Go read it. But I bring that up this morning because we know that in conquering the Jebusites, they, they, they're, in, in defeating the, the Jebusites, they, David was able to conquer and take hold and occupy the city of Jerusalem. And once... They had done this, once they had taken possession of Jerusalem, one of David's very first acts was to then make it the place of his residence and then, and then um, the place where the tabernacle was to be set up and established, the house of God. And, and this is when David then, according to 2 Samuel chapter 6, first tried to bring the ark into Jerusalem. David said, I'm going to live here, and I want God to be here too. I want to be near God, next to God. And, and, and this, when David did this, you know, and the, the place that it also refers to in that passage is it refers to Jerusalem, which is synonymous of one another as Mount Zion, the place where David first set up this tent where the ark would rest. And he did so in order to be near God to be as close to God as possible. And so David, in light of that, asked these three questions in verse 1. We see why, because he loved God. David asked these questions because he loved God, because he desired to be near God, and because David's heart's desire was to know God better and to have fellowship with him in a, in a more deeper way than what he had already been used to previously. But back in verse, or excuse me, back in David's day, we know that, 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 that there were certain things required for that. And in David's day, there were limitations. In David's day, there were restrictions set up in, 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 in ordinance to the laws of Moses, right, that kept people at a distance from the presence of God. And the fact of the matter is, is that the, the, Levit the Levitical priests were the only ones who could go into the tabernacle. And there was only one Levitical priest, the high priest who could go into the holy place of the tabernacle, the most holy place where the ark was, where the very presence of God would be manifested, and he could only go in there once a year. 
So, so the priests were the only ones that could go into the tabernacle, and the high priest was the only one that could go into the most holy place. And the children of Israel, who were, who were, God's, who were God's people, right, they had to go through one of these earthly mediators in order to have um, any kind of interaction with God. They couldn't, they couldn't necessarily come to him on their own. And these same limitations and these same restrictions were also true for David, even though he was the king. As a matter of fact, that was one of the reasons why Saul got in trouble is he started acting like a priest who was the, the previous king before David, and God was like, nah, that's not how it works. And yet David, he longed for more. He longed for more than what had been allowed according to the limitations and restrictions of the law. He longed for more. He desired, he said here, to abide and to dwell with God. Why? Because he wanted to enjoy all the benefits of being a resident in God's house, which meant this, being able to enjoy fellowship with God, which means being able to enjoy God's protection, God's provision. And so these questions that David asked, which are, as you can see, largely figurative, right? It reveals for us his heart, David's heart to be in intimate fellowship with God, David's heart to worship God, David's heart to know God in a more deeper way. And so these questions that David asks are really, I think, questions that all of us should be asking of ourselves. And if we're not, then I think it's safe to say something's wrong. Why? Why do you want, not want to know how to be closer to God and, and, and nearer to God, to know him more, to receive all the benefits of that? Now, the fact of the matter is, is that there was nothing that David could ever do. When you think about the law and what David was really asking, there was nothing that David could ever do. No amount of keeping of the law that would ever grant him the right to literally abide or dwell in the house of God there on Mount Zion. And why? It's because of the law. There, there was... A mighty mountain, the Bible teaches us in the Old Testament. There was another mountain, a mighty mountain, Mount Sinai, the Bible says, meaning the laws of Moses that was standing in the way. It was a mountain that could not be touched. But the book of Hebrews, as we see the book of Hebrews as a book of betters, a better way because of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews teaches us that this mountain that once stood between God and man no longer stands between us. And because of that, the Bible tells us that we now have a better way. We have access to God, and we can enjoy fellowship with our Creator and know God as a heavenly Father in the ways that David is expressing these desires to do so through our faith in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, it speaks of this in verses 18 through 24. It kind of brings it, all, brings it all together. The author of Hebrews writes and he says this, For you have not come, we have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the word, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And of course, that's speaking of the time when Moses was called up with the Ten Commandments. God was calling his people to enter into this covenant with them. And it goes on to say, and if so, at that time... If so, even as a, beach a beast touched the mountain, it should have been stone, it should be stone and shot with an arrow. 
And so terrifying was the sight of what was going on at that time. In the book of Exodus, it says, as it's recorded there, that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. He says, that's not the mountain that we've come to. That's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, but we have come to Mount Zion. Not Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, and to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And that's an awesome thing because remember the blood of Abel spoke out against his brother and it brought forth judgment and condemnation. The blood that speaks for us is the blood of Jesus Christ that calls out and allows us this heavenly access where it was not once permitted. Now I point, and I want to point out that that David, when he asks these questions, because you think about him asking these questions and knowing the limits and the regulations and, and, and everything that was in place, you might think that David would ask these questions like with despair, right? With hopelessness. And David, David's, but David's not asking these questions in hopelessness, knowing that, that because of the law and because he was not a Levite priest, that it was somehow impossible for him to ever be able to get or go into the temple. Rather, he asked these questions, and then we see that he goes on to answer them because he knew, that he knew this about God. He knew that, that, that God was not confined to the ark. He knew that God could not be contained or by, by an, earthly, an earthly dwelling place, by, by this tent structure. And so even though David knew he could not physically enter into the tabernacle, he knew that being in the presence of God and, 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 and having intimate fellowship with God and receiving the benefits of that by abiding and dwelling with God, he knew that it was still somehow possible. But he also knew this, as he writes on a little further, he knew that there had to be certain things done. And what does that mean ultimately? He, what he knew is that he knew this, that, that a person had to be in obedience to God. A person had to obey God in order to achieve these things that David was desiring. And guys, I'm here to tell you this morning, for us, even as Jesus Christ stands as the mediator of the new covenant, what David writes here is no different for us. It's no different today considering that Jesus by his blood has become the mediator of the new, new covenant that gives us our heavenly citizenship to access our God by the means, and, and we know that by this means through Jesus Christ that we can abide and dwell with God. However, listen, the intimacy part of it, the, our intimate fellowship with God, the worship of God, and the knowing of God in a deeper way hinges like a door, it hinges on our obedience and our willingness to follow after Jesus and to obey God. We come to God through Jesus. And not because God makes these things uh, some kind of condition, right? 
but, but, but because or rather these things are, are, are ways for us to worship. Our obedience is a way to worship. The things that David writes here are ways that we can worship God. They are ways by which we can experience God and know God in a deeper way. And so if it reasons to, to, to then to go, if we don't do these things, if we're, then we're missing out on the ability, the vehicle to experience God in the ways that David desires. We're missing out on the ability to worship God God in an intimate way, to have fellowship with God in an intimate way, to experience God in a deeper way. And so in verse 2, look here, David first points out really three basic areas of life. He gets very practical for us. This is how, he says, three basic areas of life in which we should bring into obedience. Three areas of our life that need to be brought into obedience, which simply means we do it God's way, not our way, Okay. And the first thing that David speaks of here in this first area of life is a blameless character. He says it this way, he who walks uprightly, he who has a blameless character. Also, a righteous conduct, a blameless character, a righteous conduct, and David explains that by saying this, he who works righteousness. He who walks uprightly, he who works Righteousness, and, and then the third area of life that needs to be brought into the obedience of God in order to experience God in the ways that David's desiring, and we as well, is David says he must have a truthful tongue. He says, he who speaks the truth in his heart, right? And then, listen, these three areas of life, I think they can be summed up with one word, the way we walk, the way we work, and the way we speak, Okay? These three avenues, these three areas of life are then expounded upon and, 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 and applied, or the application part of it is revealed in a very practical way, then in verses three through five. So David takes it and answers the question, this is how, and then he goes on and elaborates and expands on that for us. And the point is this, if we are right in these basic virtues of life, meaning they are evident they are evident, um, each of these, these, these parts of our life, if, they, if they're evident in our life, then we will be living our lives in obedience to God. Now, the first area of life, walking, okay? Walking upright or having this blameless character that David says, David speaks of, it's, it's really speaking about having integrity, something that's not common in this world that we live in today. Having integrity, Okay, and the application is found in verse four, okay, where it says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Integrity. And in light of this, we should understand that what we are largely determines what we do and what we say. What we are is largely determined by what we do and what we say. And this is why the first emphasis in these verses is on having ultimately this godly character. However, when we consider this call to walk uprightly, okay, when we consider the call to walk uprightly or to have a blameless character, it does not mean that we're perfect, that we're without sin, because we all know that Everyone is with sin. The only one that has ever been without sin is Jesus Christ. But it does not, it does not mean that when we sin, 
Um, or, but what it does mean to, to, to have integrity and, and, to, to, and still be a sinner, okay, someone who, who, who sometimes doesn't do what they say, um, it means that we, when we sin, we repent of our sin. That's what it means. To have integrity doesn't mean perfection, but it means when we make something wrong, we seek to make it right. We repent of our sin. We ask for forgiveness and do whatever it takes to make the right wrong or to make what was right, um, what was to make what was wrong right. And then um, to, 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 to walk uprightly, to walk in that, to, to, to continue to move away from that. And, and this is having a godly character. And therefore, when we, when we consider this call to be blameless, we understand that it has to do with integrity. And integrity, which is defined as the quality of being honest, of being trustworthy, of having strong moral principles that are followed at all times, is the result what we see of a devotion to God. Because that's what God calls us into. He calls us into repentance turning away from our sin, making it right. And so people with a godly character, those who walk uprightly with integrity and devotion to God, what do they do? You, we despise wickedness. And we despise those who do evil things, meaning, meaning we don't give any honor to vile or wicked acts. We don't give any honor to those who act in these ways. Rather, we give our honor to God. We give honor to those who walk in fear of God. The second area of life is this works part of it. Works of righteousness. Again, this is not a prescription for salvation, right? It's something that defines those who are already a citizen of God's kingdom. But works of righteousness, or really a righteous conduct, that's a better way, I think, of putting it. A righteous conduct. And it's really speaking about a word that is also, I think, absent in our society today in many ways. It's the word honesty. Honesty. Integrity and honesty. And the practical application of this is found here in verse 5 where David says this. It says, He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. The point is, is those who have a righteous conduct, those who work righteousness, are honest. Especially in their personal dealings. And more than that, but they're concerned about and stand up for what is just with the things that then take a place around them. It's not only a call to your own self, but it's a greater sense, a call to what's going on around you and the effect and influence that you can have in that sphere. Now, in regards to the Hebrew people and God's law, we know from what we read in, in Leviticus chapter 25 that God had prohibited the Hebrew people from charging each other interest. That's what usury is referring to. And, and, and um, so when the Hebrew people lent one another money that was to be done freely, it was with no interest. But even though this was something that God had commanded, now when we use the Hebrew people as an example and we look at what David's speaking about, I think it opens up our understanding because sometimes we, 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 we move into dishonesty or uh, unrighteous conducts very subtly. You know, there's gray areas that I think that we 
give concession to. And so I think that's exampled for us with the Hebrew people and what not to do because the Hebrew people, even though God had prohibited, the Hebrew people moved into this place where they would charge one another interest when they lent money. And they did that even though this is something that God had not commanded. It was something that the nation as a whole had failed often to do. You read about it over and over again. And in their failure to do so, this is what I'm talking about in regards to manipulating honesty. What they did as a nation is they began to justify it. I know God's word says this, but certainly God didn't consider this when he said that, right? And, 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 and so they justified doing it even though it was directly against God's law. In fact, it was one of those things that was overlooked, and I put that in quotations. Think about that in relationship to your own life or what's going on in the world today in regards to honesty or truth, right? It was something that was overlooked by the religious leaders, by the, the, the people in authority, and it even became, quote-unquote, accepted, something that was accepted, God's law was overlooked, and therefore the compromises were accepted in their society, and it was something that happened over time. But the truth is, the truth is, is that the Hebrew people were not dealing with each other honestly when they did these things. Why? Because God's word said something different. And the point is, is that there can, there can also be things in our lives, guys, sinful things, things that God has spoken specifically to and about that can become overlooked, that are overlooked and even accepted by those around us, by your immediate group, or, or even greater, by our society, and then even justified that God has clearly justified these things that God has clearly said, do not do. But the truth is, is in those times and in those situations and in, those, in those, those instances, we're not dealing in honesty. We're not dealing in honesty if our conduct does not line up with what God has said, even though it may be an acceptable thing by those around us. And that's what David's referring to here, specifically. And so honesty in all of our dealings are you honest in all of your dealings? And what David's, again, prescribing for us is, is this is a way by which we enter into this intimacy with God, where there's nothing wrong between us. Honest in all your dealings. But also, David takes it a little bit further. Again, I want to point this out, but it's also standing up for what is just. So you're honest in all your dealings, but beyond that, in addition to that, and equally to what what, what David puts forth to begin with, he's all, are you standing up for what is just? Meaning that we're making sure that others around us who cannot stand up for themselves are also being dealt with honestly. And the point is, the point behind all of this is, 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 is given as David speaks about not taking a bribe against the innocent. That's what he's talking about. In other words... There can be no justice. Think about this now. There can be no justice in a society where money is what determines what is right or what is wrong. And I think the current state of our nation is a testimony to this very thing. And may it not be so among us as the children of God. It hinders our relationship. 
Now, the third thing and and final area of life that is addressed in this psalm, it has to do with the way we speak. And uh, man, you want to ever do a Bible study on on speech and the words you speak and and the tongue, and and it's you'll spend days and days and days doing that. I'm only going to be able to touch the surface of it this morning, but I will do so in the context of what we're reading here. And, and, and so in regards to the way we speak, speaking the truth in your heart, as David says here, or having a truthful tongue, it's really a reference to sincerity. So honesty, or integrity, honesty, and sincerity, right? Our, 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 our words, our works, Sincerity. And the, and the application for this that David gives is an answer. You know, one who has a truthful tongue, uh, speaking the truth in your heart, um, is given in verse 3, the application where it says this He who does not backbite with his tongue, ooh. He who does not, who, he who does not, does, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up reproach against his friend. And you know when we start to talk about the tongue and you begin to create a list of like things you should not do, you know, it, it goes on and on. And David lists a few here. And at the end of verse 4, there's an additional application where he says, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, if you make a promise, you keep it, even if it comes at your loss. The point is this. The point is the people who speak their truth, the truth in their heart are sincere. They do what they say. Sincerity is the quality of being free from pretense, free from deceit, and here's the ultimate one, free from hypocrisy. And, and, and when, we, the, when we are people who have truth in our hearts, then our lips will not speak lies. Our lips will not spread gossip about our neighbor or anyone else. We will keep our word and do what we promised no matter what. When? When truth is in our heart. In other words, the, the, the truths we speak, guys, because we do. We speak things. But when it's in your heart... The truths we speak will ultimately then be reflected by the way that we live our lives as we stand for the truth and stand in the truth. So, a desire for the presence of God and living in obedience to God are the two keys. Two keys in order for us to have intimate fellowship with God and to know God in a deeper way. But perhaps I think the most significant thing that is required for knowing God and having intimate fellowship for us, or or, or intimate fellowship with Him, it all boils down, I think, to this for us to trust in the promises that He's made. And that is reflected in this psalm. And this is why, and this is what David really is ultimately pointing us to at the end of this psalm in verse 5, at the end of that verse, when he says this. He who does these things shall never be moved. Where? Be moved from what? From the abiding and dwelling with God. In other words, this means that that the godly, okay, quote unquote, the godly, 
Those, as David refers to, who walk uprightly, those who work righteousness, and those who speak the truth who are described in this psalm will have security and stability in their life, and they do not have to be afraid. They shall never be moved. Those who do these things. That's the promise. Do you trust in the promise? If you trust in the promise, then you'll head this direction. And the the Hebrew word, I think, is important here. The Hebrew word for moved that David speaks in here, he shall never be moved in this last verse, is a very very harsh word, a very extreme word in the Hebrew language. It's the word moot. And it literally means a violent shaking, like like, a a, a class 10 um, earthquake, you know, on the magnitude scale of 10, something that's going to shake down and destroy buildings to rubble. That's the kind of extreme word that's used here. She'll never be moved. She'll never be shaken violently and destroyed. That's, that, that shall never happen to us. And this verse with that context is a reminder for us that those who do things God's way, what does that mean? Is That means that if we shall never be moved, it means that we shall be firmly grounded in what? On what? On God's promises. Firmly grounded on God's promises. And because of that, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. And in light of this, we should remember that, that, that Jesus, when we go to the New Testament and think about this in regards to the things that Jesus spoke, you know, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, right? And when, when Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount, when he got done going through all the Beatitudes and, and all the things that we should do and who we are as the citizens of God's kingdom, you know, there, he gave this parable. Do you guys remember it? The parable of the two builders. Whose structures, right? These, these two homes, these two things that these people, these two different men built. The structures represented a person's life. And, and what Jesus said is, is that, that storms came. And, the, and, and they were tested. These two structures were tested by the judgment of the storm. And the, 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 the structure was reflective or figurative of a person's life and what they would build upon. And what we know is only one stood strong when the storm came, when the shaking came. One was not moved, the other was. And it says that the one who was moved suffered great loss. And we know that it was the life that was built by the person who did the will of God was the one who stood. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus said this, Therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to wrap it up with this. So so guys, the godly life, the godly life that our Lord Jesus discussed in the Sermon on the Mount parallels, I think, for us these exact characteristics of the godly man that is described here in Psalm 15. Go and read them for yourself this week. Go read Matthew chapter 5. 
Verse 7. Well, start in 5 and go on. But you're going to see a really cool parallel between the godly life that is described here and what Jesus speaks to us in the New Testament. You'll see that it is in line, ultimately, that how Jesus concludes and how David concludes. It is in line with the promises that are spoken in both. You shall not be moved. Who shall not be moved? The one who does these things. Remember, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the Apostle John speaks and he writes, he says, He who does the will of God abides forever. Lord, who may abide in your holy tabernacle? He who does the will of God. He who does the will of God will abide forever. And in these last days, church, in these last days that we're now living, and I think it's clear that God is allowing for things to be violently shaken. So why? So that the true will remain and then what is false will be exposed. So God promises to us, to the godly, His promise to us is that we are firmly grounded in His covenantal promises and we need not fear. I want to end with this one thing. I did a little bit of research in closing. I'm going to put it all together. In closing, I want to point out that the rabbis at the time that David wrote this, they, 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 they taught that there were 613 commands for the Jewish people to obey if they wanted to be righteous. Just 613. But this psalm, David brings it down to 11. You can count it out for yourself, figure with our David goes, nah, it's not 613, it's only 11. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 15 through 16, really gives us six requirements. If you want to look that up, Isaiah 33, 15 through 16. And a little bit later on with some of the prophets, Micah in chapter 6, verse 8, he, he brings it to three. Habakkuk 2 names one. Do you know what that is? Faith. From 613 down to one. Faith. Faith. And for us, we know that it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way to have your sins forgiven and to be and stay in the presence of God. Let's pray. Then, Lord, I pray, God, that ultimately you would give us great faith, great faith in your son Jesus and in your promises, Lord, that have been spoken to us. Lord, we know that all your promises are yes and amen, and we can, we can fully stand upon them and trust in you. And God, we do desire to know you more. Lord, to be near to you, especially when this world's fallen apart. We want to we come to our Father and be in, in, in your presence, to be protected by you, to not have any reason to fear, to cast our cares and our worries and our needs and our doubts at your feet, Lord, knowing that you hear us and that you will take care of us, Lord, to be able to love you and worship you and give you thanks and praise, Lord, to have your, 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 your presence in us be manifested to those around us. And so, God, as David answers, asks these questions and answers them, Lord, I pray that they would be applied to our own lives today. God, increase our faith. Make your promises known to us. Give us the strength to stand on them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.